The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam, including the Tascam Mini Studio. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is Extreme Freedom Audio Bulletin. It cannot be traced. It cannot be stopped. And it is the only free voice left in the Geek Revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It is the Dashing Duo, Derek and myself, Mike. And we are honored this week to be joined by, um, to me, one of the top non-Star Wars villains out there. Um, and it's actor, boxer, Jack O'Halloran. How you, how's everyone doing tonight? Doing the best I can, whatever they'll let right. me get away with. How about you? <laughs> trying trying to not get more stir crazy the more and more I'm home during this whole <laughs> stupidity. <laughs> it is that. It is a stupidity. There's no doubt about it. So, um, you have a project coming up called Family Legacy. Yeah. Tell us a little, yeah. a little bit about it, and then the we'll get it. It's um, my father was a was a very infamous individual out of New York, um, Albert Anastasia, and he was part of uh, Albert Meyer Lansky, Charlie Luciana, and and Frank Costello were all partners. My father ran a little company called Murder Inc. and. Uh, he was the Gambino family before he was assassinated. It was the Anastasia family. And he, um, if you saw the Godfather, uh-huh. uh, when they went to Brando about mm-hmm. the drug business, and he said that he had to decline because if he touched it, his children would touch it, it would be the downfall of the families. My father said that. My father, oh, wow. ran, and father controlled all the ports. So he said, you're not bringing that stuff into my ports. It's, we didn't sign up for this. And a lot of the old timers were against wow. you know, so they but Genovese was big time in the drugs and thought there was so much money there and convinced everybody that there was a fortune to be made and my father said, you know, you'll forget how to make money if you get into that and they did. And everything he said became true. You know, it just uh was a, it was a glitch in her armor that really hurt them bad. So So I, I guess to go from this how does it feel knowing your father was part of the inspiration for char- uh, for part of the character that Brando played in The Godfather? I, you know, Albert was a very, very smart man, and he uh, he had a lot of principle about him. And he, uh, I mean, they were, it was a different time and a different way of life. And they, you know, when when I was a young man in Philadelphia being raised up, we never locked our front doors. There was no drive-by shootings. Neighborhoods were safe. You wouldn't think of committing certain crimes because you know somebody was going to come down on you. So there was a whole different, uh, whole different atmosphere and an environment, you know. And uh, 
And, and everybody, they do, you know, it's amazing. Hollywood doesn't have a globe that you can look into and, and a crystal ball and say, well, this is going to make money, that's going to make money. But the one genre of film that has always made money has been organized crime pictures. And even the spoofs make money. But no one really tells the truth. They always take Hollywood liberties and they and it's always wham, bam, thank you, man, killing stuff. And, you know, no one tells the truth of how in the beginning the government, industry, organized crime and unions were all partners up until the 60s. I mean, they, they were there for each other. They took a lot of the illicit monies and they put it back into the growth of a country. They created a lot of jobs uh, on the waterfront and construction and they invested in General Electric and Westinghouse and insurance companies. Meyer Lansky was a pretty clever uh, accountant guy, you know. So they... <clears throat> No one ever talks about that, how they all helped each other. And uh, and it's time the truth be told. So I wrote a book that starts with my father's death and ends up with Kennedy's death. And I tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination. And uh, we're going to write a few more books and tell a lot more truth. And it's about time that somebody took the veil down and told how things really progressed in the country. Now, the book's out now, yes? Yes. I'm going to have to go get this book. This sounds very... Yeah, definitely. The Kennedy assassination has always intrigued me because even before I got into the entertainment industry myself, I look at the film and I'm like, there's no way the fatal shot came from the back of the head. No, it is, it, it's, it's an impossibility. So Spe- first of all... Especially when you- Jackie's saying, I'm holding the, the back of his skull to his head to keep the brain in. That's not a... Well, that's not a, a shot from the. It had already blown out. She was, she was trying to get it out of the car because she thought they were going to shoot her next. She was scared shitless, you know. But, to be honest with you. But that that type of well, you can't you can't really blame her. Yeah. Well, you I, can. I mean, you, first of all, there were thirteen shots fired that day. Second of all, you're talking about something that took them six months to reroute that that route down Dealey Plaza. Before Jack Kennedy went to Texas, four people went to his brother, who was the number one cop in the country, Bobby, was attorney general. Four people, including Adlai Stevenson, went to him and said, please don't let your brother go to Texas because there's too much animosity down there. And Adlai Stevenson said, they just spat on me in Houston. Do not let him go. So here, he lets John go in an open car. Yeah. Yep. And Bobby, who was his second skin, didn't go before. He wasn't there during, and he never went afterwards. Okay? So, and Jack Kennedy would not have lived his term out. He was really ill. He was dying of Addison's disease. They shot him up every day because he was in pain. He had syphilis. He had two other, he had four diseases altogether. He was physically not in great shape. And his, if you were going to say what one person would be responsible for his death, you had to look at his father. His father made a lot of enemies. He backstabbed every person he ever did business with. And he would have rather seen Jack die the way he died than die from a medical illness and put a mar against the family. And you could say, wow, that's pretty cold. Well, look what he did to his daughter. Yeah. He lobotomized his daughter because she suffered from ADD before anybody knew how to treat it. He lobot- mm. I mean, she sat in an institution all her life for 70 odd years looking yeah. out a window. Yeah. How cold is that? You know, and, and you got to go back and know the history of Joe Kennedy. He wasn't the nicest person in the world. He, he, he angered a lot of people, and including the people in Texas. You know, the oil people of Texas 
had a product called surplus oil uh-huh. that they made a fortune with. When Jack Kennedy got elected president, his father said, you know what? You got to put a tax on these guys on this surplus oil business. It cost them $200 million a year. Think that it angered anybody? Of course it did. You know, so, they, I mean, there's just a lot of things that Joe Kennedy did, including the Depression, uh, Europe. There's just so many. I could sit here for an hour and go down a list of things that angered people. And he was under control of Chicago and he didn't like it. And if it wasn't for Chicago, Jack Kennedy never gets elected. If it wasn't for Sam Giancana, he would have never got nominated. When he came to California to be nominated and H.L. Hunt brought a suitcase full of money and gave it to Joe Kennedy for Johnson to run as his running mate, they told him they had all the electoral votes all in hand. Two days after they were there, they called up and said, well, we got a problem. And Giancana said, well, you said you had this. Oh, no. Well, we got a problem. So for the very first time, the state of Illinois went Democrat and two states beside it. And they still were short. On the third day, he called back again. There was only one state that had enough electoral votes to push him across the nomination, the state of West Virginia. And they had a lot of, well, we had a few illegal casinos down there because of all the money involved in coal and other things. Yep. And they, Gene Connor made a phone call to a gentleman there, uh, Cellini, and they excused some debt. And West Virginia raised their hand and Jack Kenny got nominated. And then when he ran for president, if you recall, the race was very, very tight. And Joe was on the phone to Sam all the time. My God, we got to do something. We got So you had people in Cicero and other little counties of Illinois vote 20 times and they were dead. And this all came out afterwards. And it was a very close race with him and Nixon. You understand? Yeah. So once he got elected and he was supposed to, Bobby was supposed to become to uh, be an ambassador to Ireland and he told his son make your brother attorney general and then he told Bobby put all my good friends in jail <laughs> so he went after everybody see definitely I would love to sit down and talk to you about this on a and different the guy who orchestrated the, 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 the deal in, in Dealey Plaza that day was everyone thinks it was first they thought it was the Texas guys then they said it was the mafia then they said it was the CIA because of the Bay of Pigs yeah. you know there was like four different groups that they blame. I, I've heard the Cubans or, as well. Yeah, well, the Cubans were the other one because it's belly pigs as well. Yeah. So they turn around and they, and the guy who orchestrated Dealey Plaza was the most famous hitter out of a, out of out of Europe that was ever was called the Jackal. It's Carlos Sanchez. He was the guy with the umbrella at Dealey Plaza. He orchestrated the whole thing. It was the first thing he ever did in America. And he did that for the bankers of Geneva who never forgave Joe Kennedy what happened at the crash. Wow. So there's so many things that no one really, it's all there. History's there, but nobody fares to look at it. You understand? Oh, I understand a lot. And Oswald wasn't even in the window. There was a prison right alongside the bird building, and those guys were looking right at the building, and there were three people in that window. Two of them were were complected, dark complected. They were Cubans. And now if you know anything about shooting or rifles or anything, you're talking about a mail-order bolt-action rifle that Oswald supposedly took that wonder shot that hit Kennedy. Now, any marksman will tell you, if you're doing a shot over a 1,000 feet and you're in an area where there are a lot of variables and Dealey Plaza had wind variable that you couldn't even hear the microphones on the police cars and there was signs, there was trees, and the car was in a decline moving. 
and it takes you, any shooter will tell you, you have to sit and arrest your heart for 60 seconds because your finger is in your pulse before you take a shot and take all the variables. So when you tell me you shot three shots in 28 seconds with a bold action gun, that's impossible. That's bullshit. That ain't happening. Yeah. You understand? Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. the first shot hit, hit Conley. Conley fell in front of Jack. In front of Jack. Jack then got hit in the throat. You see him grab his throat. Yep. And he fell forward, and he got shot in the lower back, and that didn't come out until about 15 years later. And then the last shot was taken by the driver. He just slowed the car down and veered over to the left less than 10 miles an hour and took the last shot that blew his head backwards, blew Jack backwards. And that's why Jackie got scared shitless. She thought they were shooting her next. But when she climbed out of that car, the Secret Service guy that grabbed her whispered in her ear, if you say one thing about what happened here right today, we'll kill your children. And she never opened her mouth, ever. Wow. Think about it. That's all stuff we haven't heard. Zabruder, Zabruder that took the footage, the Zabruder film that everybody's watched, that footage was bought by Life magazine before it was ever shot. Zabruder never held a camera in his hands before that day. And he suffered from vertigo. And he was up high and two women were holding him by the legs and never Mm -hmm. took his finger off the button while 13 shots were fired all around him. It's insane. It's insane. Now, now it opens my eyes more when I go back and watch that film. Well, there's just eight frames missing out of the film yeah. that I have that were put into a film later on, and and the eight frames show the driver turning and shooting Jack Kennedy. Wow, wow! And they edited that film at the Murchison <clears throat> Film Laboratory. <laughs> How about that. So all this is in your book, yes? Oh uh, yeah. Awesome. Oh, I can't wait to read this. I really can't <laughs> wait. Now let's uh, start off some with your boxing career. Uh, you you were you were on your way to face Muhammad Ali at one point. Well, we were signed four times actually, but we had um, I, I played football and then I never put a glove on until I was twenty three, and uh, I, I was disenchanted with when uh, when they hired Q Harrick at Philadelphia. He traded a championship football team, and Ali had just won the title, and it was at a period of time when there were no hardship cases. You had to wait to play pro ball until your class graduated from college. Right. I was just eligible that year to play, and I was going down to Philly to play. And and when Ali, I I said to some friends of mine in Philadelphia, I I can beat that guy. And they said, well, that's a good idea. Let's put you in the gym. And uh, (laughs) voila, you know, it was a great day job. (laughs) I love how you put it. It's a day job. (laughs) I was involved in my father's business at nighttime, so you had to have a day job where the police would be looking down your throat to see how you made money. Okay. Now, how did you end up going from boxing into acting? Well, you know, when I went up to Boston, I I, I was boxing out of Boston, and uh, oh, they, Steve cool. McQueen did the Thomas Crown Affair up there in the 60s. Yep. And uh, uh, when he came into town, we looked after him, and he and I became really good friends. And he, he said, well, come on down, and I'll put you on the set, man. You can get in the movie. We'll come to Hollywood. We'll have a great time. I said, I don't think so. I was done defeated as a fighter, and I said, you know got things that I'm doing up here and I was involved with a lot of good people in Boston and um, so I passed and then I, I knocked out Manuel Ramos in 69 in LA and they were doing a picture called The Great White Hope and some friends of mine from the East Coast put a deal together that I didn't know about that all I had to do was go sign a contract and I was going to Spain for six months to do this picture with James Earl Jones playing Jess Willard. It was a boxing picture and uh, I went to meet the producer and, and I you know, wasn't all that keen on what he was saying and stuff and, and I had just knocked out the number two ranked heavyweight in the world and I figured I'm in shot now for an Ali fight and uh, 
I passed on it. And I was leaving Fox and James Earl Jones was coming in. He said, you just told Hollywood to stick the biggest movie in Hollywood up there. He said, I got to shake your hand. I never met anybody that did that. <laughs> I came with and then McQueen called me on the phone. He said, my God, what do we got to do to get you out of here? So I, you know, and then in 74, when I retired from boxing in 75, they came to me to do a picture, Farewell, My Lovely, with Robert Mitchum. And I said, you know, maybe it's time I give this a shot. And they took me out and I did a screen test and Mitchum said it's either him or I don't do the movie. So I blame it on Robert Mitchum. Yeah, that's a good person to blame it on. Yeah. Show up. We became extremely good friends and he he was a great mentor. Now, uh, shortly after, um, there was the James Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me, which a lot of people can confuse you with Richard Keel. Richard's like seven foot tall. And, you know, they came to me, Cubby Broccoli. I had done King Kong, and I was doing a picture. I was getting ready to go do a picture of March or Die with Gene Hackman and Catherine Deneuve and a bunch of people being home. And uh, Cubby came to my agent's office in in L.A., and and they begged me to do the Bond picture. And I I didn't really like the script. I said, well, I'm already committed to do a picture, which I could have gotten out of. uh, And... Superman came right up right after that, so uh, it worked out better. Okay. So I did. I turned down four movies, five movies. Richard Kyle did them all, and it made his career. You know, so God bless him. <laughs> Richard's a good guy. He was a good guy. So, as you mentioned, Superman comes along. How did how did you get cast for that? And for me, we're, I think the we're, top we're, two movie villains from my generation or my time period as a child was Non and Darth Vader. I, I think okay. you. You two were the best up there on the big well, screen. We, we were doing March or Die, as I said, down in Spain, and they, they flew Hackman and I up to London to see Richard Donner. And uh, they, they wanted me to do the picture, and they Donner and I had a conversation, and he said, well, what do you feel about playing a guy that's a mute? And I said, you know, I embraced that. He said, wow, really? Why? And I said, because Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine. He did a picture called Gigo, and he mm-hmm. won an Oscar. I said, and I said, if I ever got a chance to play that type of character where I use facial and body expression, I'm going to embrace it. So, and then I said to him, you know, you've got to look at this thing. Because I had read the script. I said, Terrence, a vicious general. Sarah's a man eater. Somebody's got to relate to these children because it's a big children audience we're going after. And uh, I'm going to take this big brutish guy and I'm going to play him like a child, you know, learning how to work his eyes and having that child mannerism about him. And uh, evidently it worked. I'll I'll say because definitely, (laughs) you know, people ask me who are my favorite villains, you know, back in the day. I mean, I had no problems going non and and Darth Vader. Yeah, I've had people up to me at the Comic-Cons and they they remember when I first did a Comic-Con and people walked up and said, Oh my God, you can really talk? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew you could talk because we'll get to another movie later that I loved you in as well. Um, So, Richard Donner, probably one of the best. Oh, guys. I mean, for for Superman, I would say the Tim Burton for Super. Well, no, Tim Burton is the Richard Donner for Batman, as far as I'm concerned. We'll we'll go that way because Richard Donner came first. Um, What was it like knowing? Because y'all did what? Y'all, y'all. Y'all filmed both movies, uh, one and two, at the same time, right? Yeah, we did both movies at the same time. In fact, we got caught up doing two, and we had to stop because, and we had, like, shot 80% of it, and we had to stop because they needed to release one. So we had to go back and finish one. (laughs) And um, they, uh, 
and, and you could see there was something wrong. You know, Richard Lester showed up on the set, and uh, some there was scuttlebutt talk going on, and um, and they owed Lester a picture. And this goes to show you the deviousness of producers and how devious the Salkines were, and how much they shortchanged themselves because they. Didn't bring Donner back to finish two because they didn't want to pay him. Mm. And how do you cut Marlon Brando out of a picture? Why would you do that? They already did. All the footage was shot in the Lester cut of Superman 2. Brando's not there. The mother was there. Yeah, yeah. But if you see Donner cut, the Donner cut's much better. Has all the Brando footage in it. uh, If I watch two, I will only watch at this point in time the Donner cut. I I don't watch the original cut. Oh, yeah, so much better. Yeah, much but imagine if he finished it if he could have finished it the way he wanted to you know and that's the kick of yeah. it and we were like we were tarted off to jail at the end of the of the Donner cut they took us out of out of the thing and took us off to jail and um mm-hmm. we've got a we're waiting now for the smoke to settle and all this crap that's going on to get rid of and waiting for the Warner Brother uh, AT&T deal to stop. And we're going in for a license to bring Superman back. And we cause it a hologram technology uh, can bring Christopher Reeve back. Oh. And the three villains back. Uh, and oh, wow. I've got a dynamite storyline that's going to knock people right off their chair. Oh, wow. It's be incredible. Uh, yeah. That would be that would be absolutely cool. Now, oh, yeah. When you stop and think about it, Superman was the very first American superhero. And yeah. when they did three and four, they, they got rid of the all-American way. Mm. And, yeah. and, you know, Superman never killed people deliberately. He went out of his way not to do right. that. Yeah. You know, so it, it, that's got to come back you know you got to yeah. bring that type yeah. of person back again you know and yeah. i think the people go nuts mm-hmm. yeah now we, we talked a little bit before show because uh we just wanted to make sure there is something we couldn't talk about or whatnot and you said you were open book uh and you told us the story it was great and i i want a chance because <laughs> i know I, i'm looking at your facebook page and there's they're saying you, know, you and Christopher Reeve did not get along during the making of Superman 2. And you said, yeah, there's a, a lot of this is just misunderstood, misinterpreted, interpreted. I want to hear it. I want the people to hear it directly from you. What happened with this we had, the, incident the, the, with Christopher Reeve? There was there was a restaurant called San Lorenzo in Beecham Place in London. It was the first Italian restaurant there. And they were dear friends of mine. And it was becoming a paparazzi place. Princess Di ate there. And I brought all the Superman cast in there. And Hackman loved the place. And, you know, and Anthony Quinn, we got to go in there. And a lot of people that, you know, from the industry. And the guy was a dear friend of mine. And I used to eat my dinner there every night because I lived... I lived in Cadogan Square when I was doing the Superman. It was right down the street from the restaurant. And the owner called me on the phone one night. He said, Jack, he said, uh, how well do you know this Christopher Reeve kid? And I said, well, we're doing, doing a film together. I said, you know, for a while. He said, well, he's in here talking about things I don't think he should be talking about in reference to your father and your organized crime affiliations and stuff like that. And I said, mm-hmm. uh, okay, thank you for the, for the heads up. And Next day, I went to work, and he and I took a walk into a little room, and, and I had a conversation with him, and, you know, I just told him, I said, how well do you know me, son? He said, well, you know, I said, what, what gives you the right to talk about this and that when you don't know what you're talking about? Well, you know, I hear stories about you. I said, well, that's fine. I said, but next time you mention my name, say Mr. in front of it. Do you understand what I'm telling you? <laughs> and 
I thought we resolved it. And then we walked out into the hallway and he became Superman. You know, you can't talk to me that way and started all this rambling and raging. And I looked at him and I said, you know, and, and everybody was gathering around. So I grabbed him, threw him against the wall. And I was just, I was getting ready to really whack him. And Donner whispered to my ear, not in the face, Jack, please, not in the face. <laughs> wow. so I, I, I did, I laughed. I just dropped him on the floor and it's, and I walked away, and it was never talked about again. And he never did that again. So, you know, and everybody brings that thing up, and they blow away that report. Oh, my God, you hated Sue. I didn't hate him. He was a nice kid. He was a kid, though. That was the very first big movie he ever did. And he was like a child, right. you know, like yeah. a young kid. I mean, look, at he married that one girl. I mean, we used to go to a place called Tramps uh, Club. And Chris was like a naive, naive kid. And, you know, he went to Juilliard and all that other jazz. And I remember uh, <laughs> uh, Ringo Starr's ex-wife said, give him to me and I'll bounce him off the ceilings a few times and we'll sort of <laughs> not worry about it. So he married a girl whose husband was a drug dealer. Her first husband was a drug dealer and in jail. And Chris put up the money to get him out of jail. But bond. And that's how naive he was. You understand? So wow. we started looking after him from the, I mean, I always made sure nobody took advantage of him. And he never even knew that, but I did it myself. Was, well, it, you know, it's like a family. When you go back and watch uh, the Superman films, I mean, I guess you could see the, the na- naivety of him uh, in in the character because he plays Superman with some some signs of being naive. And, well, he, he was, I'll tell you, Donner got a performance out of him that was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. He, he here was this 170-pound kid that came on the set when they auditioned him for the for the role. And the guy that played Darth Vader was a, was a, a bodybuilder. Yep. Uh, uh, good guy, actually. David Prowse. And he and yep. I sat down and had a conversation, and I said, you don't want to bulk him too much because he's very vain, and, and he would not wear anything underneath of a costume that would look like he was chopped, just put definition in him. Like, the, do you remember the bodybuilder Steve Reeves? Yep. Who, yep. who was who was like, when he had like 190 pounds, Mr. America, but he had definition beyond belief. Yeah. I said, put definition in, Christopher. And that's what they did. And he, and he blew up to about 195 pounds, all defined and cut. And it worked out well, you know, and, and nobody will ever play Superman and Clark Kent the way that kid did. No, I mean, no, he made transition, yeah. but that's Donner. Richard Donner did that. Well, OK, let me pose since you brought that up. Let me pose this question with all the movies since with Brandon Roth and uh, Henry Cavill uh, and some of the others. Who who do you think has been the best Superman and who has been the best Clark Kent? Oh, I probably Brandon. Brandon was probably the closest thing, but uh, I don't think any of them touched Christopher. I mean, I uh, he was just perfect at both sides. He just, you know, and and, it's, and the saddest part is just to show you the kind of a kid he was. All he had to do was say to the Saul kinds, "No Donner, no me." Yeah. You understand uh, that? Yeah, very much Brandon so. Never, I mean, yeah. uh, Hackman never came back. Hackman said, yeah, I'm not coming back. Without Donner, without Donner, I'm not coming back. I almost right. came back. You know, it was, and all Christopher would have had to do was stand up and say, no Donner, no me. I'm yeah. walking. And they would have been in shit city, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and if Donner would have finished two, he'd have done three, four, five, and six. And it would have been a much, much better franchise. See, I, yeah, I say for the, sure. I say the same thing with... Uh, the Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Batman. If they had let Burton do three, 
I think the franchise would have gone a little longer and would have been a little better. Well, they, each one of them, Superman and Batman, got darker and darker and darker. Yeah. Mm, yep. And that's sad. You know, that, 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 and that shows you the studios are run by MBAs. You know, they, they don't have creative minds, these guys. Yeah. And it's mm. sad because... There were two franchises that should have extended for a period of time really well. And I mean, I yeah. Donner did the comic books. He still does them for yeah. Superman. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, he, yeah. he lived, eat, and slept Superman. And he did the first two so well. Like you were saying, the Donner cut is brilliant. Oh, yeah. But 80% of it shot, and then he had to patch it up. But, you know, if he'd have been able to finish it the way he wanted to, man, it would have been a mind blower. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I think so. So I, I think, Derek, I started to, I interrupted you. You were about to ask a question. He talks? He does talk. Sometimes. <laughs> right now, I'm just listening, but I don't remember what I was going to ask. Fa- one of your favorite moments filming Superman, the first film. Not, not too well. I, I guess we can't. That's not fair to say the first film because you were doing both at the same time. Fa- favorite moment during <laughs> yeah, really. the Donner era of the filming. God, there was so many. I, I guess you know, getting together with Brando was getting together with Brando was. Listen, we'll have none of that physical stuff here while we're talking there. You know, <laughs> I, kissing my daughter to bed. Uh, Oh, I thought it was your wife <laughs> driving a hold of you. No, okay. that was my daughter. So, <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, there were so many great moments in that in that deal. You know, working with Turn Stamp and Sarah was great. But Brando was, you know, Brando was Brando. I mean, you know, he, you know, he when Brando walked on a set, you could hear a pin drop. And he was just so, it was a great experience. I've been very fortunate in my career to have worked with some great actors. And, you know, Brando and Hackman and Mitchum and Jimmy Coburn, Omar Sharif, a bunch of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Turn I sick. remember what I was going to ask yep. now. What what was it like uh, wearing the, the costume for Nan? It was an interesting costume. Uh, they, you know, wasn't bad because it gave you a lot of freedom. You weren't restricted in any way. Uh, yeah, that's true. Was, you know, and sure made Sarah look good. Yeah, mm, true. So, yeah, the material was, it was, it was okay. You know, it wasn't bad. It was light. It was lightweight. The boots were a bit awkward, but. <laughs> so, um, with Brando, you met him after he did Godfather, yes? Yeah, yeah, we were. Uh, did you get a chance to talk to him about no, your family he, history? Yeah, he and to, He couldn't wait to see me. You know, he knew my father. He, you know, he's a New York guy, that guy, you know. And Mitchum had told me, he said, go down to set the day he comes in and say hello to him for me as well. And when I went down the set, when they brought him in the Shepherd, because we shot the first 11 days of film were Brando so they could get the money. He did all of his filming in 11 days. Okay. You know, and he uh, and he came on the set and the people surrounded him and he saw me and he just broke away from running over and we sat down, we had a chat and the nice get down and watch him work and we we would have dinner afterwards and stuff and Marlon was it was an extremely kind individual. I liked him a lot. What was it intimidating being across from him during the whole uh, trial sequence? At the beginning? No, it actually it actually energized you. You know, you you're dealing with a with a, 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 a I mean, you had and Terrence Terrence Stamp was a great actor. Terrence was a great actor as well. And yes, he was yeah. Which actor? Like Terrence Stamp. Yeah. Terrence was a great actor. You know, so Sarah was new, but she was she knew she was going to be a good actress, and so but Brando. Brando's Brando. I mean, it was uh, to me, it was like energy. I, I, I was thrilled to work with him. But I got over all those hurdles working with Mitchum. Now, if you can work with Mitchum, boy, you work with anybody. 
<laughs> so no starstruck, no no being starstruck walking onto a Superman set with Brando and Stamp that first no, day. No, uh-uh. That's awesome. And, who, who, and, and you would never have thought back then that Terrence Stamp would go on later and play Jor-El in the Smallville series. Yeah, I did. That, that surprised me as well. No one turns. But, you know, he was, uh, they must have paid him a lot of money. I don't think I don't think there was anyone. Sure, yeah. I don't think there was a better choice though. No, at the time he he was especially since they were bringing in Margot and Christopher for that as well. If you're going to have Jor-El and you can't have Brando, I think Terrence was the best choice yeah. at that time. No, Terrence, like I said, Terrence is a brilliant, brilliant actor boy, and and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Just a good guy. If there was a a scene or a few scenes that you wish you could have done over on Superman, what what would they be? I don't think there was. I mean, I don't think we did anything out of step on the Superman. We, I mean, we had we had the, we broke a lot of technical rules with Superman, doing the flying shots. You know. Yeah. We, we shot Vista Vision on Vista Vision. They had a, a, a technology called Zoptic Zorn's Optic Vision, and it was. Um, they had this big 70-foot screen, and they had pole arms coming out of it with body molds in it. And we laid in the body molds, and we had movements that we could make. So we flew under bridges, around buildings, and they shot us into the movie. Oh, wow. wow. Very long and tedious. Took a lot of time, but it was, uh, well, it was well worth it. I mean, when you look at the picture, the fight scenes and everything are just magnetic. You know, they're great. So, so it's almost the precursor to what they did, like with Mandalorian, with the LED screens for the yeah. for the set pieces. Wow! So we're talking what in the eighties, seventy eight? They're doing that we, type of concept. That's we amazing. Broke, we broke the and that was back in the, in the seventies. You know, when we were shooting that, and it was uh, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was absolutely trippy. Wow! So you you had mentioned that you were the one who decided to make uh to make him a mute character uh so how how much how much information were you given on him versus how much you you put in yourself towards well, the character the character himself was he was a he was a brilliant scientist the guy that they lobotomized you know so the right right you know, and he could have went a different way with all the technology on the planet they could have reversed that and then but they you know i i like the idea of playing in the way that I, that I played him. I liked it a lot. Mm. It was uh, gave me a lot of latitude for me to play somebody with facial expressions and, and body language, you know? And it, uh, like I said, it worked out pretty good. Well, I mean, when really I did the scene beside on the side of the truck burning the hole for the first time with the kid, yeah. I, yeah. I got all it that I finally made my eyes work and, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was actually good. It really, yeah. Right. Now, I want to get into one of my next favorite films of yours, um, only because I just I love the series. When I heard it was going to be a, a movie, I loved it. Dragnet. I, Dragnet. You as, <laughs> as Muzz. Uh, Dragnet was a lot of fun because it was Tom Hanks' breakout movie. Yeah. And Ackroyd's Ackroyd. Ackroyd's just a, You could watch Dragnet 50 times and you still wouldn't hear all the one-liners that, that, that Danny Ackroyd threw out in that movie. Day happens yeah. so quick, so fast, yeah. and it's so straight. It was like, wait, what did I hear? Oh, yeah. movie's going on. There's something else that I'm laughing at now. Yeah. No, that was so. How how did how did that come about? You playing Buzz? Well, Mankiewicz was directing the movie, you know, and he was from Superman, and he called me and asked me if I would do it, and I said, Yeah, for sure. You're going to be involved. Yeah, why not? And I read the script and I liked it. You know, it was good. It was. Uh, 
a character that I got into and, you know, I could do things with. So that was I a did. great character. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty well. Yeah. No, I had a lot of fun with, uh, especially driving down on the beach all through the stuff and going through all the teddy bears and stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can only imagine what it was like filming the night of the the sacrifice. Botchery? The debauchery. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is probably one of Tom Hanks' best scenes in that film. Yeah, it was, you know, they, they did the film well. Uh I thought it should have done a tremendous amount better than it did do, you know. But it's become like a classic film. So. Yes, it has. Yeah, yeah. It, it It is a channel stopper or surf stopper. If I see oh, yeah. it on and I'm, I'm channel surfing, I will stop in a heartbeat. Well, it's great entertainment. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just watched it a couple of weeks ago on Showtime. It was playing, it was playing on Showtime yeah, this sure. month. Right, it was, yeah. Yeah, so well, it's either Showtime great. or Epic. See, I've been watching you ever it. watch Farewell, My Lovely? It has been a long time. I think when I watched it, uh, first time I watched it was with my dad back when I was a kid. Yeah, that's a good film. So. That's a good um, And I'll tell you, I did another picture that, that unfortunately, the, the distributors ran out of money, was the Baltimore Bullet with Jimmy Coburn and Omar Sharif. It was about oh, the wow. night tournament. And that was a good movie. Yeah. It was mm. it just didn't publicize it correctly. I think I remember watching that uh, in the late 80s on one of the cable yeah. cable channels. Um, now, I noticed in your credits, you and I don't remember this film at all, Superman Requiem. Oh, they that was a, like, a, like a documentary. That was like a documentary that they did. Okay. They did like, like a docu thing. It was, a, it, was, it was okay. It was, you know, it was... We did that. It was just, uh, it was like a documentary for Superman. Okay. Interesting. I have to go back and watch it because I, I had never seen it before. It's like a documentary. Okay. I will have to go back. Um, And then Dagon, Troll World Chronicles. Oh, I did a favor for Sean Stone. I did a couple of little <laughs> bunch of pictures, one for Sean Stone, one for another guy. Uh, Sean, Sean, Sean's a real good kid. His father was a nice guy. Sean's a real good kid. Those kind of movies can always be fun. Yeah, we we they they were fun, you know, just uh, something to do for a couple of weeks. You know, it was it was cool. And Sean's a good kid. He's, I like him a lot, so I did him a favor. Mm. Very cool. Name, putting your name on something, and you know, you, you helped him distributing it and stuff. So it was it was okay. Now, am, am I right in remembering? Did I hear your voice in the Flintstones movie with John Goodman and Rick Moranis? Yeah, but that was you, a, you were the, you were the Yeti, right? Yeti, yeah. It was supposed to be. I was supposed yeah. to do another part. I didn't do it, uh, but I did the Yeti part, and uh, the director was such a schmo because they <laughs> cut out. Well, they cut out some great scenes that that we did. Because they had to make room for Liz Taylor. <laughs> it called me up from uh, McDonald's, I think it was, wanted to do a commercial on one of the scenes that I did that they cut out. It was at the gate when they were trying to get into the quarry, Elizabeth Perkins and them, and it was with, um, uh, what's her name, uh, Rosie O'Donnell. It was, uh, you know, John Goodman's a good kid. It was, it was, a, it was a good film, but it was, it had, the director was really... Anybody that takes like 30 takes to get something done, as um, I was used to better directors. I can, I can imagine, especially working with Donner. Yeah, when you got guys that can that can get what they want in seven or eight takes, you know, then that means they did their homework and they know what they're doing. 
Yeah, 30 takes seems a little excessive. Yeah. What? Uh, How about 46 one day? Oh. oh. Time for a new director. <laughs> That's what I said. So outside of Superman, outside of Dragnet, outside of um, Farewell, My Lovely, what's been probably, I know I just took out a good good chunk. What's been your favorite um, project that you've been on? Well, Farewell, because of Mitchum, I guess, and then come Superman. And, and I enjoyed the Baltimore Bullet, and I enjoyed Hero in the Terror with Chuck Norris. It was uh, probably the best thing that, that Chuck did. Um, I enjoyed every film I ever did, to be honest with you. I, I, uh, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't. I, I, it's the way I did. I mean, I turned down so many films because I just I didn't like the script or something, or, you know, whatever. But uh, So I, I got into writing and I wrote a book, and now I'm going to write three more books, and we're going to produce Family Legacy. And, and I've got this one script that I'm getting ready to do. I don't know if you ever remember seeing The Informer with Victor McLaughlin. Yeah, yeah. A John Ford picture. John Ford won four Oscars. And we did another adaptation yeah. of the book, and it came out really well. And I've sat on it for years. I turned down like six or seven times doing it because I didn't like the way they were talking about it. So we're getting ready to do that. And uh, it's called Ballad of a Simple Man now. And it's... Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing the McLaughlin role. Awesome. Awesome. Um of course, that time in the show, I, I have a question and I lose it. Uh, have you ever thought about doing any directing or anything? You know, it, it's crossed my mind, you know, uh, producing. I've done one to produce one picture. I helped on several others uh, and, I, and I'll produce uh, Ballad of his Family Legacy. Um, and I like that aspect of the industry. Uh, directing is... Uh, that's living the whole picture yourself, you know, and really, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought right. about it. I, I, I have to admit, I've, I've given, it's been tempting, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and probably, and I sit, you know, the amazing part is like, I, especially like now with this shutdown thing, I'll sit and I watch films and I'll watch one film over and over because I'm cutting it and taking it apart and looking how scenes that I would have shot different like that, you know, so. Uh, and I've done that through my career. I just uh, I, I like the, all the aspects of uh, of the industry and, and working with some pretty good directors and some great cinematographers. Uh, I learned a lot. Mm. And it uh, so when I see a lot of pictures, I get a little bit fuzzy about the way they did them and stuff. You know, what's your favorite? Um, I guess would go geeky guilty pleasure that you like watching now? <laughs> huh. <laughs> I uh, I'm still I I still love the Godfather two picture. I think it was one of the best pictures ever made. Okay. Uh, and I um, and and I could watch Superman. You know, I I've been fair with my love that I love watching because it, it just it was so well made. I mean, we had four Oscar winners on that picture: John Delaver, Dean Delaveris, who did the sets for the Godfather and won that Oscar and. John Alonzo, the cinematographer from Chinatown, you know, so it was, uh, the crew was brilliant. And of course, the, we had a great cast with Mitchum and Harry Dean Stanton and Anthony Zerby and Charlotte Rampling was gorgeous. I mean, it was in, when she was a young girl, it was just, uh, so we had a lot of fun doing the picture and, and there's a lot of great memories there, you know. So I could sit and watch that. And I love Dragnet. You know, like if Dragnet comes on Showtime, I'll sit and watch it because it's I know the laughter that's there. Yeah. And and I remember the scenes that we did that were a lot of fun doing. You know, it's uh, and working with Danny and and Frank and and Tom Hanks was a lot of fun. So it's you know it's uh, 
I love film. I can sit and watch a lot of film and I watch certain movies over and over again. It's like I take them apart and I look at them from the director's eyeball. That's very cool. So when when you when you watch your films like Dragnet or Superman, um, are you able to to separate it from from what you remember shooting it and just watch it as a as a film or? Yeah, actually, I can. You know, because the I mean, the memories are great. We had a lot of fun with a lot of great memories, but uh, mm. there. Richard Donner was such a great director. I mean, God, he's, I can watch all of his uh, Lethal Weapon pictures, you know, with, yeah. with Gibson. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. You know, and a lot of stuff that he's done. It's just, And he does everything in its own way and everything. He's a, he's a very talented man. And and I, I I like talented people, you know. It's like I, they, they just did this picture of the Irishman. And yeah. it, was, it really irked me that they took the liberties that they did because I knew Frank Sheeran well. He was from Philly. And I knew Russell Buffalino well. And I knew his nephew or cousin, uh, Billy, who was Hoffa's lawyer. And I knew Jimmy Hoffa well. And uh, Sheeran never killed Hoffa, and he never killed Joey Gallo. Hmm. So Hollywood took a liberty because there are questions that were never really answered. To people's satisfaction, but uh, right. didn't kill either one of them. I'll tell you that personally myself. I know for a fact they didn't. Hmm. But he got away with murder. And Pesci was good in the picture. And you know, and but, but to, to have uh, Pacino play Hoffa, Hoffa was as Irish as Patty's pig. You know, to have him look like an Italian guy was kind of strange. You know, and <laughs> Jimmy was a uh, Jimmy was a man's man. Jimmy Hoffa would never ask you to do what he couldn't do himself. I like Jimmy a lot. Hmm. Jimmy, Jimmy was a good person. Wow. If there was one, would go ahead, Derek. I was gonna say, right? Would, uh, would you ever think of writing any any of that in a book in your book? Or I'm going to, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm going to tell the truth about a lot of things, and I think that it's time that it was done. You Excellent. Know? Waited for some people to die so there wouldn't be a lot of hassle in their life. But uh, <laughs> I sat down with some friends of mine, and uh, yeah, it's time to. Time to tell us some truth. I mean, all this jazz about where Hop is buried and all that stuff. And I know exactly where he's at. And I know how it happened and why. And, you know, uh, there's just a lot of things that people deserve to know the truth about. Okay. Well, I'm not going like to. I'm not going to do some good reading. Yeah. I want I want to wait. I don't I don't want to ask now where Hop is buried. I'm going to wait for the book. Like, read. <laughs> and read. Um, what's the one role that you turned down that you regret turning down? Uh, there was a picture with, uh, with, uh, Gene Wilder and, uh, Richard Pryor that I was doing King Kong and we had a break period while they went to New York to shoot the ending and, and, uh, they wanted me really, Paramount wanted me badly to do this movie and King Kong was going to let me go up and do it and then I would have come back and done the finishing scenes on Kong and, and I'm sorry I didn't do it and, uh. Uh, yeah, that would have been so I good. Would, I would have loved working with Wilder. He was a great actor. And Pryor. Pryor was yeah. Pryor. Richard, I knew Richard, and it would have been a lot of fun. So mm-hmm. Richard Keel did the movie. You know, I turned it down, and they wound up, you know, Richard Keel did it. I remember which movie this might have been then. Yeah, so. I just did it. It went right out of my head. It was... Stir uh, Crazy? Stir, what? No, not Stir Crazy. It was, uh, oh, my God. Oh, think about it. Oh, boy. Done in 76. I'm pulling up his IMDb now. 
So it'd be uh, around the 76 time period. Giant TV pulling up. Uh, Silver Streak? Yeah, that's it. Silver Streak. Oh, 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 yeah. Silver oh Streak. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Silver Streak. Did and you? I should have done that. And then there was a picture with uh, Clint Eastwood that, um, that I should have done as well. With uh, And Richard Keel did it. Okay. In fact, there was two pictures. One of them was the football picture. And, uh, and one was with Eastwood and one was with... Uh, with uh, oh god, what's his name? Uh, oh, Smokey the Bandits. Uh, what the hell? Jeez, my name, name, my man, my brain's gone. Uh, Bart Reynolds. Bert, Bert Reynolds, yeah. Bert was a good friend, and he did a picture. Of oh, the, Longest uh, Yard. Longest Yard, yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot he was in Longest Yard. Mm-hmm. Did, did you and Richard ever talk about possibly wanting to do a movie together or try and get in the movie uh, together? No. No, Richard was a nice guy. Richard was, uh, he died from a disease that I had as well called acromeglia, which is a pituitary tumor. Uh, and he grew like he's like seven foot tall, man. He was a big guy. Richard was a big, mm, yeah. and his wife was like five foot one. Oh wow! He was, uh, <laughs> he was, he was a really nice guy, Richard. He was, you know, that was good. You know, he, I did. I turned down a war picture that he did. Uh, I turned about five or six pictures down that he did, and, and it made his career. It's good. So he must have loved you for that. Uh, we you know we had a couple good conversations. I used to see him at Comic Cons once in a while. <laughs> um, do you ever get a chance to do the Superman convention? There in Metropolis, Illinois. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, we did it a few years back. And it was, uh, yeah, we had a good time. Actually, it was good. Though it was, uh, it, the whole city's like like Superman in, oriented. It's really cool. Well, that's very. Yeah, cool. I like. I remember going there when the original museum opened, in like seventy three, seventy four. That was before we even did the movie. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, His daughter Morgan runs the museum now. Really? He's not there anymore. His daughter runs it. Okay. Well, I, nice know, I know the original museum closed, and then they brought it back many years later, or a couple yeah. decades later. But I, I remember uh, going. I was, I was real. My parents tell me I was like four, three, anywhere between three and five, and it was like shortly after it opened. And Superman came out, and I ended up running behind my dad's legs because <laughs> there's my hero from TV standing right in front of me, and he's bigger than what he, than what I see him on TV. <laughs> Um, But I do remember, though, when Superman 2 came out, I was one of those people who was a sucker to buy at the movie theater the souvenir kryptonite. (laughs) And I got in trouble for my, why did you buy that? There was no need. If I only knew where that was now, (laughs) I'd be making some money. (laughs) It was a rock painted with phosphorus green. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, did you get a chance to to keep any mementos from from the set of I, Superman? You know, I'm not a hoarder. People ask me that all the time. I I got some things from Farewell, pictures of Mitchum and I, and and, and uh, some stuff. But I I, I never um, no, I never hoarded. I was never no, I've never been a hoarder in my life. So I mean, I've got plaques of my own from boxing hall of fames and stuff that are in a box. <laughs> I don't even display them. Oh, you know, wow. I get trips from Italy and stuff for acting and stuff, and um, and I don't even uh, I, I just not not that I don't play the game. Okay. Yesterday, yesterday, and it was a lot of fun being there. And tomorrow's tomorrow. Very cool, Derek. You got anything yeah. else? 
Um, I've just been having fun with the stories. These are great. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I that. Where can people find you online? Uh, FamilyLegacyTheNovel.com. Got it. Go check it out now. Uh, thank you for for coming on. It it was a honor and a blast. Um, hey man, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. You and, I, know. and I would definitely love to chat with you again off air some other time and just hear the, the stories about <laughs> about Kennedy and, and the whole assassination. Um, and I blame my dad, uh, even though he he passed away back in 2017. I blame my dad for getting me hooked on that because I'm also hooked on Jack the Ripper too. Did you ever? Have you ever? been to the library and really looked up the information on it have you yeah. ever really because it's yeah. all there i mean you know when you get down to it you got to go back to the like to the very beginning of the 20s and joe kennedy was a brilliant banker he married a girl rose fitzgerald whose father was a gangster from ireland and he was the first senator of massachusetts he owned the boston bank he was a wealthy wealthy guy he controlled all the liquor from scotland and ireland and they, Joe Kennedy had a, a factory, a, a warehouse up in Canada, and they were bootlegging him and a guy from Newark, New Jersey that owned Fleischmann Liquor. And they were bootlegging down into America. And he, there was a load of booze that came down that belonged to the Purple Gang, and he hijacked it to take it somewhere else because I guess he got a better price or something. And that was a bad idea. And the Purple Gang said, you know, kid, you're a dead man. And he ran back home to his father-in-law and he said, well, what am I going to do about these guys? He said, I can't help you. Only one guy can help you, and he's in Chicago. Joe Esposito was the first Don in Chicago. Yeah. And he went out mm. to see him, and Joe said, you know, kid, you're a very good earner. You go home. I'll take care of the Purple Gang, but you belong to us now. And they had him under thumb all those years after that. And the only money that he ever put into a building in America was the Mercantile Building downtown Chicago. Yeah. They made him do that. And, you know, he's a... Uh, so there's, I could give you a thousand stories about you know, where he went from there and how the crash happened. And then when he was ambassador to England and things he did over there, why they threw him out, why he came home. And, you know, oh my. there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff that, you know, led up to. And his first son was the one that he wanted to be president, Joe Kennedy Jr. He was the one that was supposed to be president. And wow. he was he was just being mustered out of the service and because the genetic bankers of geneva had such anger against joe kennedy his son was a, a good pilot and they devised an airplane that was going to be a kamikaze type plane to fly into the munition factories of germany and they wanted somebody to test pilot oh, wow. and they talked joe kennedy wow. into test piloting it plane blew up he was dead a week later they scrapped the whole thing Wow. His first son got killed, and he was already out of the service. He only had like 10 days before he came home. Wow. So uh, It's funny you mentioned the Purple Gang. Um, my, I don't remember if it was my mom's father, who they lived in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Uh, whenever they came over into Michigan, he used to treat different members of the Purple Gang. Or, <laughs> or if it was my dad's father who was a printer in kent ohio I, okay i want to say it was more my dad story i heard from my dad that they they used to print the raffle tickets for the purple game they were they were uh they were very uh standout group there were a bunch of jewish hitmen and uh homosexuals most of them and they were uh hmm. <laughs> They told you you were dead, man. You were dead. Yeah. They yeah. a lot of people. They, were, they had no sense of humor. 
I want to say it was my my dad was saying they used to print tickets for the Purple Gang all the time. Yeah, they were good. I mean, I I knew a couple of the old timers before they died. They were I liked them a lot. The stories were great. You know what they did, and it was a it was a great time in America. Changes that were going on and everything. Yeah, you know. Well, I can't I can't wait to see Family Legacy on screen. Whether it's, yeah, it's be a great movie, it really will be. Uh, I would yeah. I would love to see it as a as a full like a seasonal show on like well, Netflix or Hulu series. as well. Series because there's so much information that there's no way you could put it in a two hour movie. So we're going to do a series and and we're going to mix it because Charlie Luciana's son is my friend and he's got his father's book, The Last Days, The Testament of Charles Luciana. And Charlie and my father were partners, so they, there's a lot of stories we're going to intertangle and you know. Mm. And Charlie Luciano, he was he started the OSS, oh, wow. which became CIA. Yeah, a lot of things that people don't know, you know, wow. of the closeness of the government and certain people. So it's it's time to tell the truth about some things. Oh, I can't wait. That would definitely be a yeah, good series. That, that, well, it's, that's something that's going to be on. It's on my list now. A lot of old timers that actually, when I wrote my book, I gave it to four high school kids, you know, to read. And they came back to me and they said, why have they never taught us this in school? Because they ran to the library and looked up the names and stuff, you know, yeah. Ireland and this guy and Frank Costello and who these people were and and uh, they couldn't believe it. No one ever taught them stuff that's in the book in school. So wow. it's going to be a... Yeah, you'll enjoy the read. I can't wait. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find a copy now. Mm. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to find a copy. I can't wait to read it. Well, thank you again for coming on with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. It was, guys. it was an honor. It was a blast. Um, well, I hope the audience enjoyed the show. I I enjoyed. Oh, yeah. I enjoy. I I enjoy listening to the tales. I'm glad we were able to set the story right about the Christopher Reeve incident. Yeah, um, that's out of proportion. And I I will continue to preach. That we got it firsthand from the person who was there, one half, and, and it was the whole thing's inflated just just to make things sound more sensational. That's, there's the media for you. Yeah, you got that right. Um, so uh, thank you again, Jack, for coming on. And until next time, want to know more? So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production.